Hey everyone, I'm Mike Dunn. I'm Julie Cook. I'm Matt Downing. And I'm Janine Dunn. And you are listening to Rethinking EDU. Hey, you made it after the winter reboot and you are listening to our next episode and we promise it'll be worth your while. We're hanging out this evening with Justin Menda. And uh, Justin, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. How about yourselves? Doing great. Doing great. Thanks for joining us. And Justin, uh, just a little bit about yourself. You are the founder of Rocket Prep, a test prep company. And we're recording this is um, our season called Perspectives, where we're bringing in individuals who are kind of working in education, but may not have uh, what I would call a typically amplified voice in the conversation. And so um, you and I worked together at my uh, primary school employer, AIM Academy, um, and we have also, we've worked there in a couple different capacities, um, but... I'm just grateful that you're here for this conversation and we have a great lineup of questions for you. But before we dive into anything deeper, let's get a little bit about you. So you founded you founded Rocket Prep. Um, how long ago did that happen? And how have you been working with students over maybe like your, your time as a test prep tutor and before? Yeah, uh, well, pleasure to be here. I uh, appreciate the invite. Uh, Rocket Prep is about a year old. Um, before that, and I was freelance for a couple of years and uh, uh, worked as a tutor at a test prep company for uh, several years after that. It's about 10 years total. Um, and it was, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I, I always say the, the best things in my life were opportunities that I seized uh, rather than plans I had made. Uh, I got into this thinking it was going to be a side gig, like a good side gig while I got my master's in education. Uh, turned out to be my main focus. And uh, I mean, it's been a great ride for the past 10 years. Cool. That's super cool. And and so you said you got a master's in education, um, mm -hmm. but you're not a teacher. How did, how did that come about? Well, uh, I thought I was going to be a classroom teacher for a few years and then uh, move on to something else. Um, that turned out to be not for me for a, a variety of reasons. Um, one of the biggest ones uh, was just the practical reality. I mean, I, I found I, I was, uh, I, you know, I felt like I was doing great work in one-on-one -on -one settings and small groups where, you know, I had the flexibility to be responsive to students um, moment to moment, day to day, week to week, month to month, et cetera. And when I'm not simply delivering content, um, and, you know, I mean, I know we have a, you know, a couple of classroom teachers in the, in the chat. I'm just completely blown away as to how you do it. Um, you know, it's just something that I didn't feel like I had the chops to do uh, at, uh, at the level I liked. Um, but, you know, the, the one on one and small group setting turned out to be, uh, you know, turned out to be where I, uh, where I did my best work. That's awesome. I have to ask, this isn't a question that, I was thinking about when we started this conversation, but I, I'm just curious your your thought and co-host. I hope you uh, don't mind if um, you indulge me for a second. I, the test prep industry has sort of like a rough reputation in the world, um, <laughs> as you might be aware. There was a major, um, you know, lawsuit a couple years ago uh, around 
uh, around test prep industry professionals. And there sort of is ongoing, um, ongoing, just like scuttlebutt in the education industry around test prep. How how do you deal with that? Like, uh, how do you combat that sort of like negative imagery and um, and like really feel like you're putting your best foot forward and working with students? Uh, wow. Okay. So it, I mean, it sounds like there are two components to that question. Uh, the first part, how do I deal with the negative image? Is uh, well, uh, I don't <laughs> unless I unless I have to, and uh, when I do have to, I just laugh along with people. It's ridiculous. Like, there's no. There's no explaining, you know, you're talking about that, the college admission scandal, right? Where very wealthy people were, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, there's no, it's, it's not controversial that that's ridiculous. And, and it's, uh, it is in many ways a, um, oh, wow, I want to be careful how I say this. Uh, it is a, it is entirely logically foreseeable as a consequence of, of, of the way we treat standardized testing and, uh, standardized test prep, um, you know, at some point there are going to be people who have the means who just, you know, want to do stuff like that. And when there's demand, there's supply is bound to happen at some point. And, uh, you know, it makes sense. There are a lot of, uh, perverse incentive structures in this industry, like there are in most. Um, I mean, I've been fortunate enough. Uh, I mean, a, a lot of it is the sort of the niche that I, that I play in. I mean, I, I don't work with people who are just looking to, you know, um, cut me checks until their kids tests improve or, or, you know, uh, see their kids as, um, and I'm not, not, you know, I'm not trying to say that any particular parents necessarily think this, I'm just, you know, presenting these, um, specters as a, as a, a foil for, for, for my own clients. Um, I, I tend not to work with parents who see their kids as vessels into which you're supposed to pour knowledge until test scores come out. Um, I, I want to play the long game. I want to focus on transferable skills. Uh, I don't want to pretend that anybody needs help with something they don't need help with. Uh, and I don't want to pretend that the tests matter, matter to people's lives more than they actually do. Um, if the process is going to be worth something, uh, it needs to be worth something far beyond the test. Um, and I, you know, it's sort of, so, you know, the, the people I end up working with are, you know, it's sort of self-selecting in, in, in both ways. Um, I mean, I, I think they, they can tell right away, uh, that, you know, I'm not the kind of person they can just, uh, like I, I don't, I don't play, I don't swim in those waters. Um, so I, you know, my, uh, my business didn't really change much, fortunately with that, with that insane scandal. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think you're right on there because the pay for play model is is super inevitable when it comes to super high stakes things. Rich people will pay to play with that sort of thing, yep. right? Yep, totally. They really want their kid to go to uh, you know, Stanford or whatever other sort of fancy uh, school mm -hmm. and uh and they'll use their means to make that happen. And and, and honestly, I think to your point, it's a logical consequence of the world that we're living in because, you know, people feel like they're they have to scramble to do the best for their kid, no matter what. Mm -hmm. They have to give everything, whether that is millions of dollars or a house or a kidney, to <laughs> make sure that their kid is better off than they are. Yep. You know, and it's that it's that sort of like intense individual like if my kid is not going to going to um 
get this thing, then then what what am I doing as a parent? Right. And it's hard it's hard for me to to like argue with that. You know, Janine, Julie, and Matt, y'all have kids. It's a hard argument to combat, right? Wouldn't you all give as much as everything as you could to make sure your kids have the best, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, you know, this is reminding me of uh, of something in uh, uh, Stephen Pinker's book, The Blank Slate. It's, uh, I mean, it's 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 fantastic. I mean, I I, I love Stephen Pinker's work generally, um, and uh, so The Blank Slate is uh, an argument against the idea that we are blank slates at birth and everything that we become is socio cultural. There's a lot of evidence that. Uh, you know, a lot of the most important stuff in life is, uh, I don't want to say genetically determined, but heavily influenced by genetics. And um, one of those things is a lot of aspects of personality. And he talks about how, uh, like personality and actually a lot of out- a lot of other outcomes like career choices and, and, and so on. Uh, a lot of that stuff, it comes from, you know, uh, aspects of the interactions among genes and parenting and peer groups and luck and circumstances and so on. Um, Some of which you have influence over as a parent. And therefore that's, I mean, it's, it's your imperative to, to get right. Uh, But the rest of it, I mean, especially as they get older is completely out of your hands. And uh, if you see that that's important because if you see your role as a parent as determining the personality and you know successfulness of your kid you're going to go insane and you're probably going to drive your kids insane a better way in his view to conceptualize the role of a parent uh, and i would I, I would extend this to educators frankly is to think okay who is this person that i that f- f- part of whose life i'm i'm responsible for what are they like? What's what's their personality? What are they bringing to the table? And how can I best serve them? Which is a completely different conceptualization. And you know, it's it's more that you're 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 being receptive to who these to who this you know the, the, these people are your kids, and you know you're trying to be a responsible. Um, I don't know what's the word you would pick a steward. But but you know the the trap that people fall into is no I am responsible for literally everything that happens to no it's like no first of all you're not yeah I totally agree with that there, we had a friend of ours that used to always say that you know parents shouldn't wear their kids on their arms as like a badge of honor you know that um, they're they're a whole different being and you need to yeah exactly what you just said there um, you know who are they and how can you best support them that's that's a great message I love that yeah super fascinating. Um, I just, uh, while you were talking, I just, uh, popped over to audible and added it to my, uh, you know, book, uh, audible, uh, list. So it's, uh, sitting right in between, um, the a promised land by Obama that I'm in the middle of and, uh, omnivores dilemma. Um, you know, good times, good reading all my, all my lighthearted reads of the world. Right. So Justin, tell, you've been working as someone that I would describe in this space of like auxiliary educational programming. And I'll, I'll like uh, elaborate on that a little bit. So um, 
at my school, you have your core academic teachers who are sort of doing all the things that normal academic teachers would do, much like Janine and, and Julie are working um, in their schools as. And, but then you also have this collection of individuals who are occupying auxiliary educational programming. So they might be coaches, they might be tutors, they might be just other people that are sitting sort of on the periphery of the primary instruction of the school, but still offering really important services and occupying really vital roles within the school community. And I would argue that someone in that sort of position has a really unique kind of perspective, if you will, on what school is and how it functions. And this is what I want to kind of get you to to elucidate for us, right? As a person with this unique positionality, how, like, what is your perspective of the current existence of school? Easy question. Easy question. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, how long? How, <laughs> how 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 long do we have? How many days do we have to talk about this? Um, okay. I mean, I think part of my answer to that question is that we in this country don't quite seem to have an answer that we've all coalesced around. Um, and and that's that's one thing one thing that I um, that I observe. I can't I can't remember where I where, where I where I read this, but I I I sort of get the impression. And okay, I'm not an expert uh, in this per se, but I I, I just uh, um, I. I feel like it's important to at least explore the the idea. Um, I sort of get the impression that countries, societies that have successful education systems, by pretty much whatever measure you want to apply, are ones in which the model of education aligns with the particulars of the society. So Finland is one example uh, that's often held up as a uh, obviously a country that has a very very successful education system. Uh, the uh, central one of the central values, uh, as I understand anyway, is uh, is equity. So, you know, if if, if you know if, if one school is going to get something, they're all going to get it. And if it costs more to deliver, you know, a certain standard of education in one district than it does in another, so be it. You know. Um, and you know, along with that, there's uh, re- a lot more reverence and respect for teachers. Generally, teacher education program uh, teacher education programs are much more difficult to get into. They're much more uh, rigorous than a lot of the ones here. And and you know, sort of they, they elevate teacher you know the status of teachers. And um, of course, they, they they get amazing outcomes. There, there seems to me to be um, something about having your education system's goals aligned with the goals of the rest of your society. And just to build off that, I think that that can go really either way, right? So like, for example, if your education system is aligned with something super negative, you know, a group like the Hitler Youth, for example, come to mind, then you can ultimately have an education system that is producing individuals that are really aligned with kind of scary things. I think the great example that you're giving, Justin, is that Finland has chosen something like equity that is super important and that uh you know american school systems are tending to ignore right now so maybe it's uh you know behooves education systems to start with a value set that is like intrinsically equitable for all students and that you might have um more likely to be experiencing such like 
successful outcomes in, in education. There was an excerpt out of a book that I had read once and I was like, not, not all cultures should, there are, it should be meshed with schools now that I think of it. Like, um, I, I found, I found the excerpt that I was thinking of in my head. It says, dear teacher, I am a survivor of a concentration camp. My eyes saw what no man should witness gas chambers built by learned engineers, children poisoned by educated physicians, infants killed by trained nurses, women and babies shot and burned by high school and college graduates. So I am suspicious of education. My request is help your students become humans. Your efforts must never produce learned monsters, skilled psychopaths, educated extremists. Reading, writing, arithmetic are important only if they serve to make our children more humane. Maybe it should be the opposite. We need to flip it where the schools need to be producing these more more humane <laughs> students. Yeah, absolutely, Janine. And I, I think we do need to make some decisions to what Justin is saying around how we're treating students in an equitable manner. Um, and I don't know that equity has been at the heart of American society. In fact, I'll go back a second. I know that equity has not been the heart, at the heart of American society for so many years. And it really is critical that schools start to treat that as being a, as being a priority and trying to teach young people to be better human beings, better members of society, better members of their locality, all of these things that I think are um, really what we should be working toward. School's a producer of good humans. I love that idea. Yep, yep totally. And if we are supposed to be... Um, uh, you know, innovators and, and, and forward thinkers and, uh, you know, slightly rebellious, uh, iconoclastic, you know, that's sort of this is some of the attributes of things that are sort of classically American. Um, we really need to have schools that are not made of classrooms anymore. We spend 12 years. Uh, oh, was it who's 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 that comedian? She was she was amazing. I, I'm kicking myself for not remembering her name. Uh, but it, her joke was, you know, you spend the first years of your life, the first year of a child's life, teaching them to stand up and talk and the next year, teaching them to sit down and shut up. And in, in many ways, you know, we've sort of extended that to, to, to 12 years. And, uh, you know, it's, you end up with a system in which, uh, you know, everybody's doing heroes work, heroes work. And, you know, we're not, we're not seeing the outcomes. And, you know, I, you know, there's, there's plenty of blame to go around, but I, you know, I, I think, I think the biggest thing is we haven't, A, we haven't coalesced as a society around what the goal of our education system should be. Is it lifelong learning? Is it to prepare people for jobs? If it's prepare, prepare people for jobs, what jobs? Uh, do we even know what's going to be necessary? Like, uh, are we going to follow the science about how people um, learn things or are we not? And, um, you know, do we want a cohesive national strategy or do we want to, you know, push everything to localities? And, you know, these are all things on which reasonable people can disagree, or most of them anyway are. Uh, but, you know, we need to, um, societies and communities have to have some kind of idea. And, and, and I, don't, I don't get the impression that we've, that we've done that. A quick follow-up with, with what you were saying. Can you elaborate a little bit more about what you meant by uh, schools need to not be made up of classrooms? Um, what, what did you mean by okay, that? I remember hearing about a network of charter schools. I believe it was the rocket ship schools. I don't want to you know, plug them necessarily or you know, hold them up as, as an exemplar, but they are, they are an example of uh, uh, sort of a, a counterpoint to what I'm thinking. 
sometimes it's best to explain it by you know by contrast uh they instead of classrooms they have a bunch of learning spaces so the the, the one i was hearing about was k through eight uh they have uh, i mean you know things like uh an art studio and something like a science lab and like a bridge that goes through the middle of campus that's specifically designed for kids to get up on top of and throw things off of to see what happens you know stuff like that it's all it's all learning spaces rather than um a box that students and a teacher sit in um often in rows and uh you know in in this mode of um you know, like I was saying earlier, that there's this expectation uh, among a lot of the a lot of the adults involved in here. Not everybody, obviously, but a lot of the adults that the student is a vessel into which you're supposed to pour knowledge until you know results come out. Um, and you know, as much success as people have had, sort of uh, subverting that model, like for example, having more collegial kinds of uh, classrooms and and so on. Uh, it's still predicated on this assumption that, uh, you know, the the teacher knows exactly what everybody is supposed to do from moment to moment, and if the kid isn't doing that, then you know there's something wrong with them, kind of thing. That's a gross oversimplification, but that's that's sort of the idea. And and anything we would do to make a class more interesting is. Um, you know, like I said, it's, you know, it's, it's hero's work and a lot of people are very, very successful at it. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, there's, you know, you get the weight of the institution and the momentum of the institution. Um, so yeah, it could, it could be better. Yeah. It's interesting. The challenge, um, that you bring up and that's, and that's a huge one, right. Thinking about redesigning schools, not, not that that shouldn't be done. Um, and it's interesting to think about it. What are some other uh, challenges that you see within schools? Maybe something you know a little bit more uh, manageable that people could attack within the school without having to uh, you know take down walls and restructure the whole system. Okay, I mean I can come up with a couple of examples in math education pretty pretty readily. Yeah, uh, because one one of the things that I'm uh, that that frustrates my efforts both in both in test prep and in uh, academic coaching generally, uh, there's you know, a lot of rewarding work for me recently, um, is leaning against this tendency of math class to uh, give students the impression that doing math means applying a method you memorized in a consistent and highly predictable way to solve a question to which somebody else knows the answer. And if you don't do it right, you know, there's, you know, again, there's, there's something wrong with you. Um, I would like to see math classes in which uh, teachers follow up. Okay. And, and, and again, this, this, this is, this is done. I'm, I'm saying, you know, I'd like it, to, I'd like it to be done more. Um, I'd like to see math classes in which uh, teachers are asking students to show their work, quote unquote, not because every aspect of their work is being examined to make sure that they did it the right way, whatever that means, but so that they can practice thinking on paper instead of in their heads and basically outsourcing their working memory to the page, which greatly reduces cognitive workload. And it, you know, it improves your performance and it also makes your performance less dependent on your, you know, your mood and how much sleep you got last night and everything. It's like a, it's like a miracle cure almost. Um, 
thinking and writing rather than in your head. So, you know, let's, let's promote that for that reason. And, you know, let's, let's not, you know, let's have, let's have more flexibility about how, how students solve math problems um, and, uh, you know, make, make review more cumulative, maybe cut down the number of subjects students are supposed to, um, students are supposed to get through in math. I kind of don't like that calculus is sort of the implicit end goal of most high school math curriculum. Well, most high school math curricula and therefore everything before that. Um, shouldn't it be statistics? 100%. And uh, please keep the calculus courses for crying out loud. Yeah. That's incredibly important. And, and it's going to be, it's only going to be more important as, as time goes on, but statistics and probability are like, the, they, they make you immune at the very least. They make you immune to so many tricks that are intentionally and unintentionally being played on people in the, in the public sphere. Anyway, that's, that's a whole other subject. Um, so that's, that's something I'd like to see change in, um, in math. Generally, I would like to see things um, more project, much, much more project. I mean, well, really entirely project-based, you know, let's not, let's not be meek about it. Everything, everything should be project-based and as much as possible should be learner directed in my opinion. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, my experience with, with test prep, you know, thinking back to the days, getting ready for the SAT, um, you know, it was like hours of, <laughs> of doing these question after question. And it, it was a lot of like drill and kill, right? Um, how are you able to counteract <laughs> that? Okay. Uh, well, actually first, first I should, uh, I should ask you, like, are, are you asking how I'm able to make test prep not like that? Yes, exactly. Okay. Uh, so there's sort of two sides to that answer. Um, one side is I never approach any student or class with a fixed curriculum that I drag everyone through. I have what I would consider a set of tools. So... Uh, you know, on, on the reading section of the test, what's the best way to do it? I, like the, the, the most broadly applicable strategy I've heard is, you know, you, you look at the, you look for line references in the questions, mark up the passage accordingly. And that way, when you go to read the passage, you can answer the questions as you go. That's useful for, I don't know, maybe 70, 75% of people, but it's not useful for everybody. There are so many other strategies. Um, skim each passage and make notes on just the gist of what the, or skim each paragraph rather, and make notes on what the gist of each paragraph is. Um, read a few paragraphs, see how many questions you can answer, go back and read a few more, et cetera, and do things like that. You can bounce around. And, and so I have uh, a bunch of strategies for uh, every section, but then I, I deploy them flexibly. So it, it, it has to begin with, let's see where you're at. So, you know, I want, I want students to take a practice test first, and then I work with them to try to get their opinion on where to focus attention first, because usually there, there's like, you know, uh, there isn't like one topic that will definitely demand our focus that the, there, there could be two or three. And if I ask the student, I mean, I might have one of those in mind, but the student if I ask the student, they're usually able to say, well, yeah, I want to work on this. And it's, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily the one that I had in mind, but it's one of those two or three. So we'll go with that. And, uh, you know, I, I want my students to be in charge of the process as much as possible. And I want to be, I want to be a resource for them. I want them, I want to be a guide 
uh, I do not want to be a drill instructor and I don't want to pretend that the same approach is going to work for everybody. Um, so that's, that's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer is I, I kind of don't fight that aspect of it. Like in, in, in a, in a very specific sense, um, these tests, well, the, the SAT and the ACT are largely, almost entirely about skills. You can't cram for them. You have to ramp up over a long period of time. It's much more like getting good at a sport or a musical instrument than it is like studying for any test in school. Because you can scram, you can cram for most tests in school. You can't cram for the SAT and the ACT. You have to develop the skills over a long period of time. That takes a ton of work, and it it provides an opportunity. And a lot of that work feels really repetitive, and it therefore provides an opportunity for students to figure out how to do that and then to see the positive results from applying themselves that way so and 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 on that end of it like to the extent that it gets tedious i'm like okay this is going to suck we both know this is going to suck because this is really i mean i always i always assign the tedious stuff for homework so we can do the interesting stuff in session um the uh and and i work with them on okay how can we how can we like make a schedule, for example? How can you carve out a workspace at home in which you can do this stuff effectively? What distractions do you need to silence? And then, you know, uh, for a lot of my students, we end up writing out a plan, like putting it in writing. And then the first thing I do at the next session is, okay, how did the plan work? Not how well did you do? How did the plan work? Was that a good plan? How do we need to change it? And then over time, not only are they getting that hard work done, but it it's it's sort of contextualized in this like like a like a un, under this this broader umbrella of let's figure out how to work at something that sucks for a long period of time and you know get the result out of it so you know it's sort of uh it's still a grind but it's it's bigger than that yeah yeah i appreciate the way you're elevating sort of both of those ends of the spectrum like you're trying to be flexible and cater to the student but at the same time you're like yeah this is a skill you got to work at it you got to do it and um, and sometimes, you know, one person might go to one end of, of the spectrum and sort of stay there um, and not the other end. And I appreciate the way you're sort of dealing with. Totally, that. totally. Yeah. I mean, I, I've had I've had I've had students who this is what I love about my work. I've had students with whom I've worked for a year, year and a half, um, meeting at least once a week, most weeks. And, I, and then I've had students, you know, I, with whom I've worked for, I don't know, th three months, once a week. And then after that, they can just take what we've done and run with it and uh you know call me occasionally if they need some help with something but you know basically they can just and that's that's of course that's the goal for every student i'm really wondering and i, I guess we need to acknowledge that the pandemic is happening it's been happening it certainly has impacted the field of education that there have been uh <laughs> just a little bit i mean i don't know it, uh, I know, like, in some place, you know, the, the PSSAs, for us at least, were, were canceled last year. Now we're, we're wondering, supposedly they're supposed to happen this year. Um, I'm wondering how it's affected the you with the test prep, uh, you know, industry here. Um, has there been any challenges with, with the pandemic? I mean, on the one hand, obviously, there's a lot more demand for sort of like the remedial stuff, uh, you know, the re remedial academic work with students. Uh, on the other side of the coin, uh, for a while anyway, there was like a momentary dip in the demand for test prep because, you know, at least in the short term, 
a ton of schools went test optional and sort of uncertain what the actual fate of the SAT and ACT are. Um, I think, you know, once reality set in that, you know, wasn't really going anywhere in the very short term, uh, you know, things sort of picked back up. Um, I, but I, I think the biggest change for me is that, uh, you know, I've, I had one area of my business just blow way up, which is academic coaching. And, uh, you know, people who are just, and, and, you know, it seems to be, maybe this is just me. Um, it, it seems to be largely, uh, one sort of, I don't know, would you, would, would you call it an archetype? Anyway, uh, smart video game enthusiast boys. <laughs> I know exactly what you're Actually, talking you about. You might have two of those boys at home right now. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, there you go. So, so, you know, I mean, school probably wasn't serving them too well before. And now it's, and now it's even worse. Uh, because all the reasons that school wasn't working for them are now, you know, sort of exponentially more difficult to deal with. And, uh, you know, I have I have a few uh, clients right now who are basically in that situation. They're they're uh, you know, the, they're not doing as well in school as they wish they were. And uh, besides which their parents are taking away privileges at home and, and so on. And uh, I'm helping them you know, not just squeak by the class or, you know, play a game that they, they're not interested in, but like really get their feet under them as, as, as people. Um, and, you know, see school as, uh, or, you know, and even, even in the current situation, see it as an opportunity. Um, and, you know, I think I, I, because I used to be that kid, um, I, or at least largely because I used to be that kid, um, I've, I've had a, I've had a good amount of success with them recently, but yeah, there, there's been, there's been a ton of interest on, on that end. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, I, I it was kind of leading into my next question with that. And, you know, uh, I guess if we were to play this, what if game, you know, what if school really was done differently and we did get rid of the classrooms and, um, you know, how would that really impact, you know, test prep then and how would it look differently? But I like this idea that you're talking about serving more as like a coach and it can be even, I'm assuming that maybe it could be more, even more than an academic coach. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, Well, (laughs) you know, um, I, it's, it's interesting. Uh, One of my academic coaching clients, um, his father actually introduced me to, or sorry, talked about me to someone uh, as a life coach. And which, you know, which wasn't, I mean, I don't know if that was a slip of the tongue or something. That's certainly not how I, how I build myself, but you know, it's, it's hard to, um, I mean, if I feel like if you really care about a learner, you can't do any kind of academic work in total ignorance of, uh, you know, their own personal development. Um, and you know, you can't, you can't treat the two as, as entirely separate. Obviously you want to be very careful when you, um, uh, when you, uh, you don't want to be, you don't want to veer into giving advice on how they should handle the rest of their lives. Uh, but at the same time, you know, to, to, to do that kind of work, I mean, especially with, um, with those kinds of clients, 
you know, you, you, you really need a personal connection. You really have to trust them. And, 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 you know, that entails being interested in their lives. It necessarily entails being interested in their lives and their minds wholly apart from uh, the academics, largely so that you can help them figure out their own goals and figure out how to use school to work toward those goals. That's that's that that's that's what it's really about. I mean, I'll I'll tell I'll, I'll tell I'll tell my I'll tell my clients straight up. Like, look, I, I I'm not going to speak for anyone, any of the other adults in your life. I honestly don't care what score you get on the test. Philosophically, I don't care what kind of grade you get. What I care about is what you're getting out of this situation. So, you know, let's let's talk about what your goals are, and see what we can do to make this situation work for you. And that definitely involves reaching, you know, sort of above and beyond the test, above and beyond the academics to some extent. Yeah, Julie and I, one of our favorite, like, if you want to call it a course that we um, provide for our students, we, we call it iSearch, but they do, it's basically, what do you want to learn? You know, we, we ask the kids flat out and then we coach them. We, we find the resources that they need to, you know, learn about woodworking or learn about how to play the bagpipes or how to be a beekeeper or rock climbing, you know, whatever it might be. And we help them, you know, make connections with people that are experts in the field and they do, they do field work and they, they, they become the expert by the end of the year. Um, yeah. So that, that totally jives with me with what you were saying there. So thanks. Yeah. Justin, you, I, I feel like you would love uh, Janine and Julie's school. I think there's so much that goes on there that I hear them talk about that. I'm like, this sounds like a place that, first of all, I love. And second of all, so many people I know, like Justin, would love. After COVID, you can come visit. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> I, had a, I had a question sort of to follow up. And, and actually, um, Mike might have uh, something to say about this as well as a, as a counselor. But looking at maybe in the short term, maybe the long term, um, our tests, if you're into, you know, prepping kids for tests, and I, I agree with you and I'm listening to everything you're saying about transferability, I imagine that those skills that you're teaching um, just might get kids out of that trap of getting into a college and then having to take those remediation courses um, and, and really just be successful, um, whatever the next step could be. Um, but is testing uh, the SAT, the ACT, is that here to stay? Um, as Janine said, I know March hit and the first thing to go from the state, um, we're of course K to eight, we're the state test, now they're back. Um, I know a lot of colleges, um, you know, SATs, ACT were exempt this past year. So what, what are your thoughts about those trends? Yeah, okay, so um, it, to the extent that you're asking about, you know, whether the SAT and the ACT will be around much longer in their current forms, uh, I'd say that that's by no means a given. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised either way, frankly. Um, testing, per se, is going nowhere anytime soon. It's, it's, it, it, some kinds of tests are going to be with us for, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I mean, un unless. You know, we all live to see the day when, uh, you know, we connect our brains to computers because that, that's obviously going to change everything. Um, but, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future, there's, there's always going to be some kind of testing. And because for, for the, these big institutions like, um, like universities, uh, it, it's, 
they're they're trying to decide from among i mean far too many applicants to handle any other way uh and i mean enough of them are going to be leaning on some form of standardized test that the industry is always going to be there and it's always going to have a certain amount of clout now um i hope nobody construes this as an endorsement of that fact i i, I sort of like I, I think that's the reality, but I don't necessarily think it's the best way to go. I don't want to take a position on that. And I certainly don't want to endorse or condemn the SAT and the ACT uh, per se. I mean, part of coming at it from the perspective that I do is, you know, regardless of what the intrinsic value of the test is, you can use it to get something great out of it. And, you know, okay, I mean... D does, does that mean it's a great thing? Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's sort of, you know, but I'll go, I'll go out on a limb and condemn the, both the SAT and the ACT, AECT as they exist right now, I think are awful, awful exams. And there's research to prove it. You know, the research says that the thing that the ACT and the SAT correlate most closely to right now is your zip code. Live in a wealthy, well, live in a wealthy area, you're going to get a higher test score. That's how it goes. Yep. And I, I talked about this with my friends Kevin and Chris back on um, one of our knowledge drop episodes in in the first season uh, of this podcast. And um, you know, it's it's interesting to think. I predicted in that episode that the SAT and the ACT would be gone completely as exams um, in the next three years. I I wouldn't be surprised if that happened um, because I think you're going to see major systems like the University of California system, which is really one of the reasons why the two exams still exist right now is because there's potential for the University of California system to continue to use the exam in the future. Once that group decides, and they've already decided for both this year and for next year that they're not going to use the test, and they develop their own test, right. which is probably going to happen, then I think you'll see the like dismantling of the ACT and the SAT as we know them right now. I think the other really tricky part about this is that international schools, um, basically anywhere outside of the United States, have a much stronger emphasis on testing than U.S. schools do. You know, the That's right. if you if you're looking at admissions even to let's say um, U.K. schools, you're talking about very strict test score requirements in order to earn admission to those schools. And until that changes, there there will be some some um, use of standardized testing in for college admissions for the foreseeable future. But I think that speaks also to the like importance of the work that Justin is doing with students to help them realize that like, okay, if this standardized test, whether it's the SAT, the ACT, or the whatever other, you know, um, Cal State system or UC whatever test is going to require you to do, then you have to use it as a means to an end. Um, and you have to use it to empower yourself to become better at something that has nothing to do with the test. Because once you get into college and beyond, there's not, there's just not that many times you're going to um, take a similar test in your life. You know, can I, I, I really, I'm dying to pick up on a phrase you just used, which is a means to an end. And I, I think, you know, uh, sort of connecting back to, you know, the questions you guys asked me about the, um, you know, the college admission scandal. I think, uh, 
one of the one of the main reasons things go sideways in this industry and i i think in the human experience generally is when people take something that is supposed to be a means to an end and make it an end in itself uh that's pretty it seems to me to be pretty frequently where where things go sideways um and you know people just you know uh, on all uh sides of this issue need to remember that the test you know these tests you know whatever the tests are we have now whatever the ones we're going to have in the future they are a means to an end and uh you know we need to be no more or less attached to them than we we would be you know on that basis well justin you you have such an interesting background i'm thinking about you know you have this psychology background, you've done functional brain imaging, um, Drexel, Penn, um, you've got your um, master's in education, you are working in a school as an entrepreneur. Um, so all of this makes me feel like you have this window into education, like the outside looking in almost. And so right now, you know, I'm first of all, I'm super disappointed. It's January 12th, and we've been saying like, ah, 2021 is, is coming. <laughs> the promised land. And it's, it's not worked out that way. Um, but right now, I mean, I know we had spent a long time talking with networks and people uh, over the past, since March, uh, talking about how education is in flux, that everything will be different after this. Um, it's an incredible challenge and also this opportunity that we are faced with right now. Um, so transformational change. What do you think um, about this moment um, that education finds ourselves in, this collective um, challenge? And then also what opportunities? What, what do you think is going to stick? Uh, what are we thinking about right now? What's next? The big question. I know. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Well, what what do I what what do I think what do I think is going to stick? Um, far too little of the good stuff, as usually happens. Um, but I, I I think, you know, whenever whenever there's a like a cataclysmic situation like the like the one we're in now with the with the pandemic, the only way out is to see it as an opportunity. Uh, so that that's sort of the, the the way I try to look at it, and you know I've I've thought for a long time about uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the ruts that that education generally seems to be in. Um, it's it's done on a like like the school day is very rigidly tends to be anyway at at most schools very rigidly scheduled. The schedule doesn't entirely make obvious sense to everyone involved. Um, Classrooms, by and large, are top-down, instructor-led. Um, most of it is not project-based, um, and then, of course, there's grossly unequal access to the best methods, teachers, facilities, tools, etc. Um, but most of those things are things that have been upended pretty uh, wildly by the current crisis. It's you know it's like COVID nineteen put pulled the rug out from under us, but it also pulled the rug out from under schedules, <laughs> um, the traditional classroom structure. Uh, like schedules are completely were, were anyway completely up in the air uh, at first. Classrooms aren't really a 
thing or you know largely not a thing anymore top down uh instructor led instructional design really isn't tenable the way it used to be and you know instructor leadership is just is just way less effective than it used to be well okay i mean that that sucks and and you know it, it makes the um it makes the inequality aspect of it just far worse which is a giant moral crisis that i'm so not prepared to comment on beyond that um but look if we don't have a rigid not entirely logical schedule anymore let's take this as an opportunity to try to make a better one and you know the answer to that is going to vary by student which is exactly the point you know kids can learn this can can take this as an opportunity to learn better how they work and then structure their time accordingly um classrooms aren't a thing anymore okay fine uh what are we going to do instead well we know that uh you know for for a lot of people for most people i think the most effective learning environment is uh one where the, you know you have a certain measure of learners have a certain measure of choice in you know with whom they associate and what kinds of tasks they take on well okay now that the school day is shorter for most people and we have much more flexibility in structuring our time you know let's pot up with some people and you know do some interesting stuff um, and you know, if, if top-down instructional design isn't tenable, or you know, is, isn't as effective as it used to be when you're do, trying to do all your sessions, you know, all, all your classes by Zoom or whatever, well, okay, um, let's make class more about learner-directed activities. Let's find ways to give students more control uh, so that you know in a sense we're 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 using this crisis to like so you know we're 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 down but our our nemesis is also down you know and 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 we're uh you know it's it's an opportunity to you know try try some new stuff and uh you know in a lot of cases get back to what really matters uh and and i think i think that is that is critical for uh, I mean, I think it's critical for, for, for people to try to look at it that way to the, you know, to the extent that they can, everybody's doing heroes work in this system. We're all trying to make it work. Uh, and you know, um, some of us are going to be better able to fight this fight than others, but you know, I, I think we need to take a hard look at where current solutions to the pandemic have been aimed at preserving as much of the old structures and ways as possible. And instead like because basically what happens when you do that is you take a model and again at most schools you you end up taking a model that was sort of shaky to begin with and projecting it online through a medium that we don't really take to anyway and in a way that you know exacerbates the um you know inequality of access and, and all the problems associated with it you know let's um let's try to think about ways to look at this as a you know to to um treat it more as a clean slate kind of a situation instead of a disaster from which we have to crawl back, you know, as close to the original state as possible. I do think it is like the get back to normal mantra that people have been talking about, which includes a lot of students. And that's really interesting and something, you know, I'm sure we can talk about more, um, not on this episode, but I think like a lot of students have, have remarked back to me 
in this pandemic. I can't just, I can't wait to get back to normal. I can't wait for normalcy, blah, 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 you know? And I'm like, yo, I can't wait for things to not be normal anymore. Like I'm ready for new normal, you know? And I think <laughs> seriously, um, we can do a lot of really great work if we can help students to start to realize that maybe there are some positives to this new normal that we're experiencing. Every episode, we like to kind of pose the same question and have everybody engage in a little bit of a discussion. We've heard a lot from Justin. I think there's a lot to think about, but we always want to kind of imagine what ways is this conversation helping us rethink what education um, could or should be? Uh, who wants to go first to present their thoughts? I think, um, you know, there's a lot on everyone's mind over the past week here in January. Um, and I think what Justin said um, earlier in this episode about how can I best serve you um, is my big takeaway from this discussion. Um, with my eighth graders at this very moment um, in time, um, I think luckily for us, we are recreating the Second Continental Congress uh, via podcasting um, in my class. We've had some interesting discussions and I really think, you know, what an opportunity, I think of everything as an opportunity um, to practice civil discourse, you know, for heaven's sakes, that's what's on my mind. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I think how can I serve them best um, if they can leave with the ability to engage in civil discourse? Um, I've done something right this year. So that that is my goal. So that's what's been on my mind. And th thank you, Justin, for all the uh, wonderful thoughts. I love your approach to education. And I love that window that you have for us. Yeah. And I, I'm, I, I kind of had along the same, I actually wrote down that same, same sort of thing there about, you know, um, you know, serving, serving others. But I also wrote down, uh, seize the opportunity. Justin had said something like early on, it's just about a his own, uh, how things kind of arrived in his own life and that some of the best things that happened to him were, was because he seized the opportunity. And I'm thinking about that in just education right now too. There, sometimes we get stuck in like a rut and we just, you know, it's the same thing every day or the same curriculum and we're, you know, but we, there's always opportunities to do school differently. Um, and I think just kind of pushing that again to the forefront that we have, we can seize the opportunity today now to do school differently. That's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, this has been, this has been really interesting. Um, and there's been a lot of great, great topics and a great, a lot of great insights. Um, and this isn't like a part of education that I think about much with test prep and, and all of these aspects. So it's been great to uh, sit back and sort of ponder the way that it intersects with, you know, the wider education systems. And I don't know, it's just been really helpful for me to hear you explain these things and sort of delve into them. And then also the way you keep reminding, um, you know, these are people, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to interact with them in unique ways. I'm going to tailor things to them. I'm going to, you know, sort of uplift flexibility. Um, you know, they still need to learn these skills. Um, but I, I just think that's wonderful that, that you have that approach and you sort of embrace that within uh, one of the benefits that, uh, you know, we've been talking about too is as, as your role within the test prep, you're able to have smaller groups and interact with them. And, um, and I think it's great that, that you sort of capitalize on that. And, uh, and it gives me ways to think about, okay, so how could this be applied to education? And, uh, and it's been really helpful. So thanks. Yeah. I, 
I mean, you know, it's it's so it's so easy uh, for somebody in my position, you know, not just a tutor and academic coach, but uh, you know, as a as a business owner, to sort of uh, sort of be in my own little rabbit hole. Um, and I always appreciate, you know, when I can have a conversation with, uh, you know, with, with educators, um, whom are, I mean, y- you guys are also, you know, among the people I serve directly and indirectly, right. Cause we're all, we're all basically on the same mission. Um, and you know, I, I, I appreciate the, you know, the, the perspective that you guys have added in, like just, um, the the reminder it's it's nice to have the reminder that that there are schools out there that are doing things differently um and are that are that really are sort of pushing new models that that listen to um you know established science about how people learn um mike i i really appreciated the reminder that uh you know <laughs> the sat and the act aren't very popular um because yeah despite three three million people taking them every year yeah yeah and and it's you know you know and again it's you know it's it's not because i like i didn't know that quote unquote already but you know it's just it's you always gotta you always gotta encounter um you know sometimes you already gotta you always you gotta re-encounter things that you you already knew my reflection on this conversation is around um the idea that we're not asking the like fundamental questions because I don't know if we're not interested in the answers or we're just assuming that we already have an answer to the fundamental questions. And for that, I'm thinking like in um, in graduate school, when you study education or, or as an undergrad, when you, when you study education, you read original thinkers about education. You're reading Dewey, you're reading, you know, all of these folks that are um, – that are sort of like the groundbreaking, uh, you know, philosophers of modern education. And these folks are often grappling with this idea that education needs to be for something. But I, it seems to me that we haven't really answered that question yet. And to your point, Justin, I don't think that there's a co- common agreement around what actually we're doing in education. Like what, what are, are schools meant to be doing? You know, it seems to me that we're like thinking that schools need to be providing a quote unquote well-rounded exposure to a variety of subjects. That seems to be what schools are doing right now. But I don't know that that is really a purpose of school. That seems to be like a purpose of um, the function of how school exists right now. But I don't know that any I don't know of a lot of students that are saying, man, I really got something out of my K-12 experience because it exposed me to a wide range of subjects, you know, including English for four years and a foreign language for two to three years or something like that. You know, that's really not, I think that's what schools are doing, but I don't know that students are really feeling like that's a useful use of their time for 13 years. And and so I think that we need to get back to answering this question that you're asking is like, what is school for? I want to know the answer, you know, I, and, and to right now, right now, I think that there's a small collective of schools that are answering that question in purposeful ways. Um, I think there are some charter schools that are doing it. There's, there's a small batch of public schools that are doing it. There are some independent schools that are doing it. There's lots of homeschool people are answering that question in in uh, in important ways and 
I think that that's kind of getting to the core of like why, at least in my view, um, why why American education systems continue to be lost or feel like they're lost. I don't know if they're actually lost, but they feel like they are like wandering in the desert being like, oh, look, a palm tree. There might be something over there. And they wander over there, you know. Um, and so that's what that's what this conversation has me has me like thinking more about how do we ask those questions? How do we ask the question of like, what are students doing here? Why are they here? I want to know the, <laughs> the answer seems to be right now is like, cause they have to be, that's not an answer for anything. <laughs> you know, It's like your least favorite answer that your parent gave you when you were growing up. It's like, Oh, you, you have to go to your great aunt Joan's house because you know, that's what you have to do. And it's like, that's the worst. Um, so, Oh, totally. Oh, I, 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 with so many of my students, I, I just ask them, I mean, the, 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 the ones I, I think will sort of take it bluntly. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll offer it bluntly. I'll just be like, so, uh, why are you, why are you interested in taking the SAT? Like, well, you know, cause I want to go to a good school. Really? Aren't there a lot of test optional schools right now? Like I'll, I'll sort of poke and prod and, and it, it takes maybe two additional questions to get them to realize that the only reason they're doing it is that that's just the hamster wheel that they're on. Um, before we, before we get into any more discussion, Justin, what, where can we find your work at? Um, what's your website and, uh, direct us to anything interesting that you're reading or thinking about recently. Okay. All right. Well, so my, my, my website is www.rocket-prep.com. Pretty simple. Uh, and, uh, and I can also, I can also be reached on uh, Facebook and LinkedIn, so it's sort of an easy search. Um, books I'm into. Oh boy, I am super pumped about some of these. One uh, I think first and foremost is the book Mindset by Carol S. Dweck. So excellent, uh, and, and it's 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 the it's probably the uh, I mean it's definitely you know top three as far as like most transformational texts I've ever come across like on my own life so that's that, that's a big deal uh there's a book by uh a woman named dr jean twenge t-w-e-n-g-e the book is called igen as in the letter i and then g-e-n uh and that is an utterly fascinating book about the particular challenges that seem to be facing the the generation of students uh generation of people born in starting around 1995 1998 absolutely fascinating stuff i mean you know obviously every every generation has their own uh has their own issues and this is a book about this particular generation's one uh yeah um the blank slate by steven pinker that's a big that's a big one uh as far as like practical uh knowledge for educators there's a book called called learn better by Ulrich Boser, B-O-S-E-R. That's a that's a great one. Uh, interesting take on uh, games and learning, the intersection of games and learning. Uh, is a book called Reality Is Broken by Dr. Jane McGonigal. Uh, that the premise of that book is well, you know, why do we think why are we thinking of games as the oddly addicting thing? really it's reality that's deficient in you know, delivering people what they want. So that's why they turn to games and how can we bring those lessons into our everyday life? Uh, Creating Innovators by Tony Wagner. That's another big one. Um, we may have mentioned that one a couple of times on this podcast. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> 
And Vic, actually, it's sitting at my desk right next to me right now. <laughs> and, and I think I, I think the you know the, the last one I, the last two that I want to mention would be the happiness hypothesis and the righteous mind by Dr. Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Um, the righteous mind is the most transformational piece of text that I've ever come across in my own life. Um, it just it's a uh, absolutely the content of that book is is absolutely indispensable in my view as a um, you know helping people to understand some extremely important aspects of human psychology. Justin, it's been great to talk with you here on this amazing episode of Rethinking EDU. Um, Of course, we appreciate having you. And audience, thanks for checking in with us. Um, Our winter reboot is well underway. We're going to start releasing episodes now about twice a month. So after you hear this uh, conversation with Justin, you'll hear a conversation with another guest later on uh, in late January slash early February. And we're going to kind of continue on that role for um, for the next few months as we kind of put out there a few other individuals who we feel like really are bringing an interesting perspective to rethinking education. Um, if you'd like to uh, know more about Justin, check out his, his plugs, his website. And as always, thanks for joining us and thanks for rethinking EDU.